wonderful. Thank you for being here. I'm Buzz McNutt. I'm a visiting preacher. I was here a few years ago for about 10 years and now back to say hello in these uh, times together. I appreciate you being here. And maybe you've been a part of the, the last four messages, or this is the fourth of that in, in a series that I was calling The Eternal Plan of God. The Eternal Plan of God. And when we were first together, I, I kind of asked, well, okay, um, is there really a plan of God? I mean, I don't remember seeing a chapter or a verse that says, here is the plan of God. But indeed, we did look through scriptures, and, and uh, in particularly like Ephesians chapter 1, where the Bible talks about the fact that God indeed does have an eternal plan. That is, that, uh, that he has a purpose, that he has a counsel, the Bible says, that he has an eternal will that he prepared before the foundation of the world. Or in another place, he talks about it taking place before the ages, that is, in the ages past. And so we determined from Scripture that indeed God does have an eternal plan. That, that plan looks like... Uh, at least for me, it helps me to picture it because my finite mind cannot comprehend eternality. Uh, I view it as someplace there in the past that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit kind of had a conversation together. God the Father said, this is what I will do to redeem my people. The Son said, this is what I will do to redeem my people. And the Holy Spirit said, well, this is what I'll do to redeem my people. And they covenanted together. That covenant is called the covenant of redemption in eternity past. That was the first one. The second time we came together about this topic was from the view not of eternity, but from the view of humanity. Uh, that is, the humanity of the Lord Jesus does the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus testify that God had a plan. And I would suggest to you, all through the life and ministry of Jesus, we see statements like, I did not come on my own authority. I didn't come in my own will. I don't even say anything of my own words. I say that which the Father tells me to say. And that, to me, demonstrates a plan. I mean, let me ask you, in the humanity of Christ, in, 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 in the reality of Christ, which was our, our third one, that is, talking about the place of the cross in the plan of God. Can you imagine a, uh, well, a, a more definitive, for me anyway, clear testimony that God is talking about a plan than what Jesus said on the cross? What did he say? He said, it is finished. And that has to beg the question, <laughs> what are you talking about? What, what is finished? And I would suggest to you the eternal plan of God to redeem his people. In other words, at that point in redemption history, as far as in humanity and the reality of the cross, Jesus said, I have done, I have accomplished what I came to do. It is finished. And I would suggest to you that I believe that to indicate the eternal plan of God. Well, we, that was Friday. This is Sunday. We come now to the, the culmination 
at least thus far in the eternal plan of God when we look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at a couple of passages here in Acts 17, and then we're going to flip over to 1 Corinthians 15 in just a moment. But I would suggest to you that in both of those passages, we see a serious reliance in the testimony and the preaching of the resurrection as a completion of the eternal plan of God. Now today, uh, across our land, there'll be a lot of preaching about the resurrection. Maybe there'll be a lot of preaching about the evidence of it. I think it's wonderful. I think that we ought to study it. You know, how, how heavy was the stone that was rolled away and how impossible that would be and many other things that could be talked about, whether it's about the cross and the crucifixion or the resurrection. I think that that's wonderful and there's definitely a place for that. That's not where we're headed today. Where we're looking is in this culmination of the eternal plan of God. And to give you the end at the beginning, is there coming a day when that kind of talk will be foreign to people? Is there coming a day when, as it says in this particular text of Paul in Athens, is there coming a time when the world around us will say, well, that's strange. That's weird. Is there coming that day? I want to pray with you right now, and then I'll continue on into the text for the sermon. Can we pray? Lord, I ask you to teach us from your word, to teach us what you have for us from your word, and to plant it deep within our hearts that we might stand in this day and in the days to come as people who sound a clear call of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here's my thinking. I read Acts 17. I read 1 Corinthians 15. And it occurred to me that in both cases, the Apostle Paul is in an environment that's, that's opposite of his. A, a worldview that's different than his. And the people to whom he is talking, uh, they don't really understand him. They have a different perspective about things. And I, I wondered to myself, wow, uh, that's, that's happened to me. It's happened to me in the past. And I wonder if it's, that kind of thing has happened to me in the past. What does the future look like? And that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm kind of going to take a little look back, and then I'm going to ask, well, actually, I'm only going to ask one question about the future. I remember being a little guy, I mean a little guy this high, at Easter time, and uh, I should have brought pictures because you would ooh and ah. I know that you would, because my brothers and sister and I, we were always dressed in these little white shorts, you know, little white shorts, and we had our little white jackets, you know. It was a Easter celebration time, get together with the whole families, and kids had to wear things that we didn't want to wear, and stand around these old people. And, the old people are always talking about, well, my blood sugar's up, my, my, you know, my, my pulse, my, my blood pressure's down, you know, I got all these aches and pains. And I, even as I was coming up, I thought, you know what, I am never going to be like that. 
I mean, I am, I am never going to be one of those people that, you know, just all we do is sit around and talk about all our aches and pains because that's what's old way back there. I remember uh, my grandfather, um, my, my grandfather, we were at the dining table one time, and um, the, the jar of jelly was pretty much empty. I mean, there was very little bit of remnants left in this empty glass jar, almost empty glass jar of, of grape jelly. And my grandfather takes it over to the sink, pulls tap water on it like that, fills it up about halfway, puts the cap back on it, and shakes it up like this, you know, shakes it. And then he drank it down. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> Yuck, you know, that is terrible. And, and it wasn't until later in life I'm thinking, you know what? Do you know what a man who was born in 1895 saw during the course of his lifetime? Just rehearse. And young people, I know it's a little bit more difficult for you, and that's kind of one of my points right there. The generations change, and we forget about things. We forget about things like the Depression or a couple of world wars. And to him, he's looking at a treat, and I'm looking at ooh, and and how things change like that. And, and when I think about that sort of thing, my mind automatically kicks into, what about the future? What about things going forward? I'm often saying, you know, our young people need to see this particular movie, or they need to see or read this particular book because it tells us about what happened then, and their world is nowhere near understanding what happened then, and they need to be, may I say, brought up to speed, remember those things. And so with that kind of a, may I say, disoriented illustration, I go to Acts chapter 17, and I find Paul saying things in the midst of a group of people who don't have that same orientation. And I think that there's a lesson there for us that I want us to see. So I take it up, you know, the whole chapter is wonderful, but for me I'm going to take it up at Acts 17, verse 16. And we're going to go just through this passage. There's not this one point, two point, three point, but I just want you to see what he does in his environment. Uh, no, it's not the same as a little kid standing around listening to these people talk about their aches and pains and that sort of thing. But in the same way, there's an, an analogy, a connection there that the Apostle Paul does find himself in the midst of a group of people who don't think like he thinks. Verse 16. Now, while, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's waiting for his friends. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas. We saw that when we went through First uh, Thessalonians. And, and so uh, he's waiting for them to come. Uh, he's in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Uh, I'll continue and then we'll say a little bit about this. Verse 18 some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, 
he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. First of all, I want you to see that Paul was provoked. He's in this environment, and actually, may I chase to the end? It's going to be a point of application, but I'll by then probably forget all about it, and so I want to say it now. Do you ever find yourself in the midst of people who think differently and you're provoked? I would hope that that provocation, that provoke, would be towards the gospel. Because that's what's happening to Paul right here. He's provoked. He's looking around. He's seeing all of these idols, these people coming together in Athens in a place called the Oropagus, this place where they like to gather together. Moreover, not just like to gather together, it really is the heart of their culture. They don't have the TV. They're not going to the drive-in. They're not going here. What they do, even for entertainment, for intellectual stimulation, is they gather together at this location. Sometimes in a place like Athens, could be as many as a couple of hundred people. And they talk about philosophy. They talk about the newest thing that there is to talk about. And that's this group of people. Moreover, when you talk about people like Epicureans and Stoics, they have this idea, nothing like the Christian worldview, nothing like that God has created the world. Moreover, the, the matter, the things of the trees and the, the concrete things around us are that which is real. And therefore, we need to harmonize our lives. I know it's difficult. It is for me anyway. We need to harmonize our lives with the nature that is around us. And, and this is the kind of thinking that's going on. You see how that's completely foreign to the Apostle Paul. So he's provoked by these uh, idols that he sees. These idols, again, if you're elevating, come on, if you're elevating the matter that is around us, then you're going to place even that much more importance, text says a little bit later on, of the things that are made with your hands, the idols that are made that you can see out of gold and silver. And so these are the things that the Apostle Paul is seeing when he looks around. He sees these idols that are made, and he's provoked. What's his response? In verse 17, his response is to reason. I like that. I like that. I can find myself doing nothing but complaining, bemoaning from time to time. <laughs> Whereas the Apostle Paul came together intentionally to reason with them. I, I think, once again, there's some application there. Are you equipped? Are you ready? Are you excited? Are you enthused about reasoning with folks who don't think like you do? He reasoned with them, and he confronted these philosophers. And uh, even though he was confronted by some kind of teaching going on, some foreign, strange uh, divinities that are happening here and, and, and others were saying ah, this babbler don't forget they're in the midst of the Oropagus they're, they're, they're thinkers Romans are builders Romans are, are, are armies Romans architecture and great things like this Romans are doers Greeks are thinkers and he's, he's, he's in the midst of these thinkers. And you know what they said about him? Do we need to listen? I mean, 
This is what we do. We get together and we talk about what we think. And this guy, he's a babbler. But others say, wait a minute. I'm not so sure. He's talking about something I haven't heard before. And maybe, perhaps, I would kind of like to hear a little bit more of that. May we know, he says down in verse 19, what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring strange things to our ears. Pause. Pause once again to go to the end point. Is there coming a time, maybe in your life, maybe in the life of your children, where this thing, Jesus, pardon me, is a strange thing? The direction of our world is going, is there coming a time when it's a strange thing? Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. There it is, right there. But look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now there could be a break in time here, we don't know. But some of the people said, Ah, he's a babbler, kick the bum out. And others said, no, I want to hear him. I want to listen to what he has to say. Now, the reason I indicate maybe a different time is because the Apostle Paul starts right here in classic rhetoric. At this point, he begins his speech exactly in in true form. That that is, uh, I'll illustrate. Um, If a new speaker comes to this pulpit, You kind of expect him to say, uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Thank you for being here. Uh, It's my honor and my privilege to be here. Now, some people will say those words, and you'll think to yourself, oh, that's nice. And other people will think to themselves, all right, get on with it. You know, that's that's what everybody says. That's That's the thing to say. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. The way to begin a speech is to compliment your audience in some way. Now, you got to be careful. It's got to be genuine, got to be sincere, can't be over the top. Oh, you're such wonderful people. I've never seen a better looking crowd. You know, on and on and on like that. And now more of you are going to sit there saying, all right, get on with it. You know, right? And the Apostle Paul knows that balance. And he says, I perceive, I perceive that you're a religious group. Now, I think that what you're going to say is that's a negative. But actually, in this culture and this time period, that would have been a, a, a kind of a positive thing to say. I see that you're religious people. He's introducing his topic. He's also, he's also complimenting them in a soft kind of a way. That you're religious people. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. And what he's going to say is, is what you don't know is what I'm doing. What you don't know, I've come to tell you about. What you don't know, I know, and I want to tell you about that. And so he's catching their attention. He's drawing them in. Uh, I I go down to verse 25, talking about the God who made the world. And, And then verse 25, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind breath and everything. And that's what you do. You you, you give them a little compliment, you draw them in a little bit, and then you smack them. 
And that's what he did. Now, we're not in that culture. But if you spent your days molding and making an idol, if you spent your days buying and selling different idols, building temples, and somebody comes along and says, that's nothing. You're doing it all wrong. That's actually coming right into their face. Facing off with them about their worldview. And he continues now in a positive way testifying of his worldview that's different than theirs in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, Paul does some things there that, uh, that he's proclaiming his worldview about who God is, and God has made everything. You think you've made a God like this? Let me tell you, there's a God who's made everything. And moreover, if you notice very quickly, he changed persons. You do this. He's a God that did this. He's a God that did that. You think that he's there. Let me tell you, he's not far from us. You see what he just did? He brought them in. He's right here. He's not far from any of us. I pick it up at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So again, he's just, he's just coming against them. But finally, in this particular passage, he, he, did, he did the point that I've been making in these few messages and I wish to make again today. I want to say to you, before I read it, I believe that the Apostle Paul's boom, line that he's bringing to them is because my worldview says that God has an eternal plan. Watch it. Here it is. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. If I stopped right there and just said, come on, folks, let's spend the next 10 minutes thinking about the times that God overlooked. Our imagination would start to try and go back in times past and try and figure out exactly what it was going on. But my point is not to pinpoint that as much as to say there was something before you and me. And I know that in history, but in this case, God is saying way, way back in times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That happened then. Now there's something now that is now to repent. Now look at verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which we will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know what I think he's doing? I think he's arguing his case based on the eternal plan of God. God did this a long time ago. 
This is what God is doing right now, and there's coming a time. In other words, the plan is not over. There's a future part to this eternal plan of God. There is a day that is fixed, and it's still coming. But my point here for today, most assuredly, is that of this, he has given assurance. He's promised. He's, he's made you sure of. He's confirmed. He's affirmed that he has a plan. And the way he's done it is by raising him from the dead. Wow. I know that God has a plan. You hear it all the time, don't you? Somebody who was almost, you know, in a bad car accident or maybe almost in a bad car accident or there's something else terrible happened and even what even what does the world even say when somebody is on the other side of that tragic crisis chaotic thing that happened to them? what do they say oh i know i know what do they say i know that what i know that god has a plan for me don't you hear it all the time i know that god has a has a plan for me Look here. The Bible says that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he assured us that he has a plan. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Very quickly. Very quickly. Over to 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, that's, that's Acts. We, we go through Acts and then through the letter to Paul to the Romans and then to the Corinthians. And in chapter 15. Chapter 15. And in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, I take it up in, at, at 12. Once again, a wonderful chapter that you would love to read all of it. But I want to remind you, now, this is not, he's not present at this point. He has been in Corinth, but he's not present now. He's writing a letter to Corinth. But Corinth's just down the road from Athens. It's not far. It's, it's very close to Athens. And so they're both Greek cities. Both have those Greek thinkers, those people who like to come together and talk about the new thing, those people who love their idols and love their temples. Same culture that he comes to. And here in chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, he's talking to them about, about the Lord Jesus. He's talking about resurrection. And there are some people who don't believe that there's any resurrection at all. And so he kind of starts this tongue twister, if you will, of, of understanding about Christ's Resurrection. when he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, which, by the way, he did back in Acts, okay? He did back in Acts. If, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. <laughs> back and forth, back and forth. He pushes our brain, but he's basically saying, well, wait a minute. If you say that there's no resurrection of the dead, then that means that Jesus is not raised from the dead. He kind of, these are stair steps of increasing his point. Now, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then whatever you believe is empty, it's futile, it's worth nothing. Uh, and moreover, not only that, but my preaching about the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is worthless 
Oh, another stair step, not just worthless, why we could be accused of misrepresenting God. I mean, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. If that's not the case. He finds himself here in the midst of these uh, thinkers. These people who are thinking way different things about the way the world is. These philosophers he finds himself in the midst of. For if the dead are not raised in 16, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, he keeps climbing the stairs until he just looks at people like you. You know, that, that smirk of derision. Have you ever told anybody or talked to anybody about the Lord Jesus and you get that, that smirk? You, you poor fool. You, you poor misunderstanding. Brainless. We're, we're most to be pitied. You know, if I'm in a situation like that and I'm talking to people and uh, they're of a different worldview, and their thoughts are way out there like that, I'm thinking, okay, I, I got to come up with something pretty clever right here. I mean, they think this, and, and I've read a lot of books, so I can talk to them about this apologetic tool, and I, I can, you know, I can give them an answer, First Peter says, you know, I, I, I can come up with something pretty clever. You know, I got a Ph.D., or maybe you find yourself in that situation and think, oh, man, how am I, I going to answer them back with that? I can imagine the Apostle Paul. Wow, now, you know, I'm in this big city and this is the way they think and they're the philosophers. I've really got to come up with it. i got to come up with a gotcha. I got it. I got Maybe I need to read up more on the Epicureans and the Stoics and find out everything that they believe so I can make sure that I answer them with the, with the real, ha, 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 I gotcha. Is that what Paul does? This is the point of the sermon, folks. Let me tell you what the Apostle Paul does. Better yet, let me read to you what the Apostle Paul does. But, in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. Not very sophisticated. Not overly profound with a lot of scientific, technological kinds of things. Come back to a philosopher about their thinking. Finds himself in the midst of the Oropagus in Athens, here writing to Corinth, acknowledging that the world around him is spinning out of control with the way that they're acting, with the way that they're thinking, and he says something. He says, yet Christ has been raised. The end of the argument. The clarion call, the clear sounding of the bell. Yet Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, 
by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And here's my point in the whole sermon, all the way back to the first illustration of trying to figure out how the world used to be and how crazy it is today and wondering how crazy it is going to be tomorrow. My question to you is, when it is there and people look at you like you're talking about strange things, things that they don't agree with, maybe everybody around you, and you find yourself the only one standing in their midst, what clever thing are you going to think of to say? I say to you, yet Christ has been raised from the dead. That is where we stand. That is the verification. That's the verification that God has an eternal plan and that during our lifetime he is carrying it out and there's still more to come. And maybe the world, 25, 50 years from now, will be even crazier than it is today. And my question is, where, church, is that clarion call, that clear crystal bell ring? Who will be left standing? God the Father has an eternal plan, and he has verified it by raising Jesus from the dead. He says so in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, he says that all that he has done is capped, capped, by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. In Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 25, the Apostle Paul writes, and he writes about the faith of Abraham, and he says, Abraham believed by faith. And, and, and the words that were written down about Abraham believing by faith were not just for the people who were reading it right there, but they were, they were written down for all who would believe, like in this room. And, and then you know what it says? That Jesus died for our trespasses. And then you know what he said? Here it is. Here it is. And Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised so that the judge's gavel would hit hit the bench and say to all who believe, not guilty. Jesus was raised, the big word is for our justification. And I say to you today, in the sound of my voice, and listen now, as much as anything ever has been, that's a true statement, as much as anything has ever been, you sit where you're sitting as an appointed place in the eternal plan of God. And you hear the gospel that Jesus died on the cross to pay a price that you couldn't pay and that I couldn't pay. And God accepted that sacrifice and said to you that this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is assured, is affirmed by Christ rising from the dead. The question is, will you believe? Pray with me, would you please? Lord, we thank you for carrying out your eternal plan and that we rejoice and we shout hallelujah, we've sung hallelujah, that you indeed have raised Jesus from the dead, validating the price paid on the cross and, and pronouncing the judgment on all who would believe as not guilty, granting peace to be in your presence. Oh, so much more that we could say 
about the glorious gospel, the eternal plan that you have. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause men and women and boys and girls to be born again, to receive this message on this fabulous day of your resurrection. In Jesus, I ask it.